0: Chapter Three of the Czar's Spy by William Leque. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House over the Water. The Mediterranean Squadron, that magnificent display of naval force that is the guarantee of peace in Europe, after a week of gay festivities in Leghorn, had sailed for Gaeta, while I, glad to escape from the glaring heat, found myself back once more in dear old london one passes one's time in the south well enough in winter but after a year even the most ardent lover of italy longs to return to his own people be it ever for so brief a space exile for a whole year in any continental town is exile indeed therefore although i lived in italy for choice i like so many other englishmen always managed to spend a month or two in summer in our temperate, if much maligned, climate. London, the same dear, dusty old London, only perhaps more dear and more dusty than ever, was my native city. Hence I always spent a few weeks in it, even though all the world might be absent in the country or at the seaside. I had idled away a pleasant month up in Buxton, and from there had gone north to the lakes, and it was one hot evening in mid-august that i found myself again in london crossing st james square from the sports club where i had dined walking towards pall mall darkness had just fallen and there was that stifling oppression in the air that foretokened a thunderstorm the club was not gay with life and merriment as it is in the season for every one was away many of the rooms were closed for redecoration and most of the furniture swathed in linen i was on my way to pay a visit to a lady who lived up at hampstead a friend of my late mother's and had just turned into pall mall when a voice at my elbow suddenly exclaimed in italian ah signore why actually my padrone and looking round i saw a thin-faced man of about thirty dressed in neat but rather shabby black whom i instantly recognised as a man who had been my servant in leghorn for two years after which he had left to better himself why olinto i exclaimed surprised as i halted you in london eh well and how are you getting on most excellently signore he answered in broken english smiling but it is so pleasant for me to see my generous padrone again what fortune it is that i should pass here at this very moment where are you working i inquired at the restaurant milano in oxford street only a little place but we gain discreetly so i must not complain i live over in lambeth and am on my way home i heard you married after you left me is that true yes signore i married armida who was in your service when i first entered it you remember her ah well he added sighing poor thing i regret to say she is very ill indeed she cannot stand your english climate the doctor says she will die if she remains here yet what can i do if we go back to italy we shall only starve and i saw that he was in deep distress and that mention of his ailing wife had aroused within him bitter thoughts Olinto santini walked back at my side, in the direction of Trafalgar Square, answering the questions I put to him. He had been a good, hard-working servant, and I was glad to see him again. When he left me, he had gone as steward on one of the anchor-line boats between Naples and New York, and that was the last I had heard of him until I found him there in London, a waiter at a second-rate restaurant. When I tried to slip some silver into his hand, he refused to take it and with a merry laugh said i wonder if you would be offended signore if i told you of something for which i had been longing and longing not at all well the signore smokes our tuscan cigars i wonder if by any chance you have one we cannot get them here in london you know i felt in my pocket laughing and discovered that i had a couple of those long thin penny cigars which i always smoke in italy and which are so dear to the tuscan palate these i handed him and he took them with delight as the greatest delicacy i could have offered him poor fellow as an exiled italian he clung to every little trifle that reminded him of his own beloved country when we halted before the national gallery prior to parting i made some further inquiries regarding armida the black-eyed, good-looking housemaid whom he had married. "'Ah, signore,' he responded in a voice choked with emotion, dropping into Italian. "'It is the one great sorrow of my life. I work hard from early morning until late at night. But what is the use when I see my poor wife gradually fading away before my very eyes? The doctor says that she cannot possibly live through the next winter.' ah how delighted the poor girl would be if she could see the padrone once again i felt sorry for him armida had been a good servant and had served me well for nearly three years old rosina my housekeeper had often regretted that she had been compelled to leave to attend to her aged mother the latter he told me had died and afterwards he had married her there is more romance and tragedy in the lives of the poor italians in london than london ever suspects we are too apt to regard the italian as a bloodthirsty person given to the unlawful use of the knife whereas on the whole the italian colony in london is a hard-working thrifty and law-abiding one very different indeed to those colonies of aliens from northern europe who are so continually bringing filth, disease, and immorality into the East End, and are a useless incubus in an already overpopulated city. He spoke so wistfully that his wife might see me once more, that having nothing very particular to do that evening, and feeling a deep sympathy for the poor fellow in his trouble, I resolved to accompany him to his house and see whether I could not, in some slight manner, render him a little help he thanked me profusely when i consented to go with him ah signor padrone he said gratefully she will be so delighted it is so very good of you we hailed a hansom and drove across westminster bridge to the address he gave a gloomy back street off the york road one of those narrow grimy thoroughfares into which the sun never shines ah how often do the poor italians those children of the sun pine and die when shut up in our dismal sordid streets dirt and squalor do not affect them it is the damp and cold and lack of sunshine that so very soon proves fatal a low-looking evil-faced fellow opened the door to us and growled acquaintance with olinto who striking a match ascended the worn carpetless stairs before me apologizing for passing before me and saying in italian we live at the top signore because it is cheaper and the air is better quite right i said quite right go on and i thought i heard my cab driving away it was a gloomy forbidding unlighted place into which i would certainly have hesitated to enter had not my companion been my trusted servant. I instinctively disliked the look of the fellow who had opened the door. He was one of those hulking loafers of the peculiarly lambeth type. Yet the alien poor, I recollected, cannot choose where they shall reside. Contrary to my expectations, the sitting-room we entered on the top floor was quite comfortably furnished, clean and respectable, even though traces of poverty were apparent a cheap lamp was burning upon the table but the apartment was unoccupied olinto in surprise passed into the adjoining room returning a moment later exclaiming armida must have gone to get something or perhaps she is with the people a compositor and his wife who live on the floor below they are very good to her i'll go and find her accommodate yourself with a chair signore and he drew the best chair forward for me and dusted it with his handkerchief i allowed him to go and fetch her rather surprised that she should be well enough to get about after all he had told me concerning her illness yet consumption does not keep people in bed until its final stages as i stood there gazing round the room i could not well distinguish its furthermost corners for the lamp bore a shade of green pasteboard which threw a zone of light upon the table and left the remainder of the room in darkness when however my eyes grew accustomed to the dim light i discerned that the place was dusty and somewhat disordered the sofa was i saw a folding iron bedstead with greasy old cushions while the carpet was threadbare and full of holes when i drew the old rep curtains to look out of the window i found that the shutters were closed which i thought unusual for a room so high up as that was Olinto returned in a few moments, saying that his wife had evidently gone to do some shopping in the lower marsh, for it is the habit of the denizens of that locality to go marketing in the evening among the costermongers' stalls that line so many of the thoroughfares. Perishable commodities, the overplus of the markets and shops, are cheaper at night than in the morning. "'I hope you are not pressed for time, signore,' he said apologetically, But, of course, the poor girl does not know the surprise awaiting her. She will surely not be long. Then I'll wait, I said, and flung myself back into the chair he had brought forward for me. I have nothing to offer you, Signor Padrone, he said with a laugh. I did not expect a visitor, you know. No, no, Olinto. I've only just had dinner. But tell me how you have fared since you left me. Ah, he laughed bitterly i had many ups and downs before i found myself here in london the sea did not suit me neither did the work they put me in the emigrants quarters and consequently i could gain nothing the other stewards were neapolitans therefore because i was a tuscan they relegated me to the worst post ah signore you don't know what it is to serve those emigrants i made two trips then returned and married armida I called on you, but Tito said you were in London. At first I got work in a café in Viareggio, but when the season ended and I was thrown out of employment, I managed to work my way from Genoa to London. My first place was Scullion in a restaurant in Tottenham Court Road, and then I became waiter in the Beer Hall at the Monico, and managed to save sufficient to send Armida the money to join me here afterwards i went to the milano and i hope to get into one of the big hotels very soon or perhaps the grill-room at the carlton i have a friend who is there and they make lots of money four or five pounds every week in tips they say i'll see what i can do for you i said i know several hotel managers who might have a vacancy ah signore he cried filled with gratification if you only would a word from you would secure me a good position i can work that you know and i do work i will work for her sake i have promised you i said briefly and how can i sufficiently thank you he cried standing before me while in his eyes i thought i detected a strange wild look such as i had never seen there before you served me well olinto i replied and when i discover real sterling honesty i endeavour to appreciate it there is alas very little of it in this world yes he said in a hoarse voice his manner suddenly changing you have to-night shown me signore that you are my friend and i will in return show you that i am yours and suddenly grasping both my hands he pulled me from the chair in which i was sitting At the same time asking in a low intense whisper do you always carry a revolver here in england as you do in italy yes i answered in surprise at his action and question why because there is danger here he answered in the same low earnest tone get your weapon ready you may want it i don't understand i said "'feeling my handy Colt in my back pocket "'to make sure it was there. "'Forget what I have said, "'all, all that I have told you tonight, sir,' he said. "'I have not explained the whole truth. "'You are in peril, in deadly peril.' "'How?' I exclaimed breathlessly, "'surprised at his extraordinary change of manner "'and his evident apprehension "'lest something should befall me. "'Wait, and you shall see,' he whispered, But first tell me, signore, that you will forgive me for the part I have played in this dastardly affair. I, like yourself, fell innocently into the hands of your enemies. My enemies? Who are they? They are unknown, and for the present must remain so. But if you doubt your peril, watch. And taking the rusty fire tongs from the grate, he carefully placed them on end in front of the deep old armchair in which I had sat, and then allowed them to fall against the edge of the seat, springing quickly back as he did so. In an instant, a bright blue flash shot through the place, and the irons fell aside, fused and twisted out of all recognition. I stood aghast, utterly unable for the moment to sufficiently realize how narrowly I had escaped death. "'Look, see here, behind,' cried the Italian, directing my attention to the back legs of the chair, where, on bending with a lamp, I saw to my surprise that two wires were connected and ran along the floor and out of the window, while concealed beneath the ragged carpet, in front of the chair, was a thin plate of steel whereon my feet had rested. Those who had so ingeniously enticed me to that gloomy house of death had connected up the overhead electric light main with that innocent-looking chair, and from some unseen point had been able to switch on a current of sufficient voltage to kill fifty men. I stood stock-still, not daring to move, lest I might come into contact with some hidden wire, the slightest touch of which must bring instant death upon me. "'Your enemies prepared this terrible trap for you,' declared the man who was once my trusted servant, when I entered into the affair, I was not aware that it was to be fatal. They gave me no inkling of their dastardly intention. But there is no time to admit of explanations now, Signore, he added breathlessly, in a low, desperate voice. Say that you will not prejudge me, he pleaded earnestly. I will not prejudge you until I have heard your explanation, I said. I certainly owe my life to you tonight. Then quick, fly from his house this instant. If you are stopped, then use your revolver. Don't hesitate. In a moment they will be here upon you. But who are they, Olinto? You must tell me, I cried in desperation. Dio, go, go, he cried, pushing me violently towards the door. Fly, or we shall both die, both of us. Run downstairs. I must make feint of dashing after you. I turned, and seeing his desperate eagerness, precipitately fled, while he ran down behind me, uttering fierce imprecations in Italian, as though I had escaped him. A man in the narrow, dark passage attempted to trip me up as I ran, but I fired point-blank at him, and gaining the door, unlocked it, and in an instant later found myself out in the street. It was the narrowest escape from death, That I had ever had in all my life. Surely the strangest and most remarkable adventure. What, I wondered, did it mean? Next morning I searched up and down Oxford Street for the restaurant Milano, but could not find it. I asked shopkeepers, postmen, and policemen. I examined the London directory at the bar of the Oxford Music Hall and made every inquiry possible. But all was to no purpose. No one knew of such a place. There were restaurants in Plenty in Oxford Street, from the Frascati down to the humble coffee shop, but nobody had ever heard of the Milano. Even Olinto had played me false. I was filled with chagrin, for I had trusted him as honest, upright, and industrious, and was puzzled to know the reason he had deceived me, and why he had enticed me to the very brink of the grave. He had told me that he himself had fallen into the trap laid by my enemies yet he had steadfastly refused to tell me who they were the whole thing was utterly inexplicable i drove over to lambeth and wandered through the maze of mean streets off the york road yet for the life of me i could not decide into which house i had been taken there were a dozen which seemed to me they might be the identical house From which I had so narrowly escaped with my life. Gradually it became impressed upon me that my ex-servant had somehow gained knowledge that I was in London, that he had watched my exit from the club, and that all his pitiful story regarding Armida was false. He was the envoy of my unknown enemies who had so ingeniously and so relentlessly plotted my destruction. That I had enemies I knew quite well, the man who believes he is not is an arrant fool. There is no man breathing who has not an enemy, from the pauper in the workhouse to the king in his automobile. But the unseen enemy is always the more dangerous. Hence my deep apprehensive reflections that day as I walked those sordid back streets over the water, as the cockney refers to the district, between those two main arteries of traffic the Waterloo and Westminster Bridge roads. My unknown enemies had secured the services of Olinto in their dastardly plot to kill me. With what motive? I wondered, as I crossed Waterloo Bridge to the Strand, whether Olinto Santini would again approach me and make the promised explanation. I had given my word not to prejudge him until he revealed to me the truth, yet I could not, in the circumstances, repose entire confidence in him. When one's enemies are unknown, the feeling of apprehension is always much greater, for in the imagination danger lurks in every corner, and every action of a friend covers the ruse of a suspected enemy. That day I did my business in the city, with the distrust of everyone, not knowing whether I was not followed or whether those who sought my life were not plotting some other equally ingenious move whereby i might go innocently to my death i endeavoured to discover olinto by every possible means during those stifling days that followed the heat of london was to me more oppressive than the fiery sunshine of the old world tuscany and everyone who could be out of town had left for the country or the sea the only trace I found of the Italian was that he was registered at the office of the International Society of Hotel Servants in Shaftesbury Avenue, as being employed at Gatti's Adelaide Gallery. But on inquiry there I found that he had left more than a year before, and none of his fellow waiters knew his whereabouts. Thus being defeated in every inquiry, and my business at last concluded in London, I went up to Dumfries on a duty visit, which I paid annually to my uncle, Sir George Little. Having known Dumfries since my earliest boyhood, and having spent some years of my youth there, I had many friends in the vicinity, for Sir George and my aunt were very popular in the county and moved in the best set. Each time I returned from abroad, I was always a welcome guest at Greenlaw as their place outside the city of Burns was called, and this occasion proved no exception, for the country houses of Dumfries are always gay in August, in prospect of the shooting. Some new people have taken Rannoch Castle. Rather nice, they seem, remarked my aunt, as we were sitting together at luncheon the day after my arrival. Their name is Leithcourt, and they've asked me to drive you over there to tennis this afternoon i'm not much of a player you know aunt in italy we don't believe in athletics but if it's out of politeness of course i'll go very well she said then i'll order the victoria for three there are several nice girls there gordon remarked my uncle mischievously you have a good time so don't think you are going to be bored no fear of that was my answer and at three o'clock sir george his wife and myself set out for that fine old historic castle that stands high on the bogney overlooking the cairn waters beyond dunscore one of the strongholds of the black douglas in those turbulent days of long ago and now a splendid old residence with a big chute which was sometimes let for the season at a very high rent by its aristocratic if somewhat impecunious owner we could see its great round towers standing grim and grey on the hillside commanding the whole of the valley long before we approached it and when we drove into the grounds we found a gay party in summer toilette assembled on the ancient bowling green now transformed into a modern tennis lawn mrs Leithcourt and her husband a tall thin grey-headed well-dressed man both came forward to greet us and after a few introductions I joined a set at Tennis. They were a merry crowd. The Leithcourts were entertaining a large house-party, and their hospitality was on a scale quite in keeping with the fine old place they rented. Tea was served on the lawn by the footman, and afterwards, being tired of the game, I found myself strolling with Muriel Leithcourt, a bright, dark-eyed girl with tightly bound hair, "'and wearing a cotton blouse and flannel tennis skirt. "'I was apologising for my terribly bad play, "'explaining that I had no practice out in Italy. "'Whereupon she said, "'I know Italy slightly. "'I was in Florence and Naples with mother last season.' "'And then we began to discuss pictures and sculptures "'and the sights of Italy generally. "'I discerned from her remarks that she had travelled widely, indeed she told me that both her father and mother were never happier than when moving from place to place in search of variety and distraction we had entered the huge panelled hall of the castle and had passed up the quaint old stone staircase to the long banqueting hall with its panelled oak ceiling which in these modern days had been transformed into a bright pleasant drawing-room from the windows of which was presented a marvellous view over the lovely nithsdale and across to the heather-clad hills beyond it was pleasant lounging there in the cool old room after the hot sunshine outside and as i gazed around the place i noted how much more luxurious and tasteful it now was to what it had been in the days when i had visited its owner several years before we were awfully glad to be up here my pretty companion was saying we had such a busy season in London. And then she went on to describe the court ball, and two or three of the most notable functions about which I had read in my English paper beside the Mediterranean. She attracted me on account of her bright vivacity, quick wit, and keen sense of humour. Therefore, I sat listening to her pleasant chatter. Exiled as I was in a foreign land, I seldom spoke English save with Hutcheson, the consul and even then we generally spoke Italian, if there were others present, in order that our companion should understand. Therefore her gossip interested me, and as the golden sunset flooded the handsome old room, I sat listening to her, inwardly admiring her innate grace and handsome countenance. I had no idea who or what her father was, whether a wealthy manufacturer, like so many who take expensive shoots, and give big entertainments in order to edge their way into society by its back door, or whether he was a gentleman of means and of good family. I rather guessed the latter from his gentlemanly bearing and polished manner. His appearance, tall and erect, was that of a retired officer, and his clean-cut face was one of marked distinction. I was telling my pretty companion something of my own life, how because i loved italy so well i lived in tuscany in preference to living in england and how each year i came home for a month or two to visit my relations and to keep in touch with things suddenly she said i was once in leghorn for a few hours we were yachting in the mediterranean i love the sea and yachting is such awfully good fun if you only get decent weather the mention of yachting brought back to my mind the visit of the Lola and its mysterious sequel. Your father has a yacht, then? I remarked with as little concern as I could. Yes, the Iris. My uncle is cruising on her up the Norwegian fjords. For us, it is a change to be here because we are so often afloat. We went across to New York in her last year and had a most delightful time, except for one bad squall, which made us all a little bit nervous but moves is such an excellent captain that i never fear the crew are all north sea fishermen father will engage nobody else i don't blame him so you must have made many long voyages and seen many odd corners of the world miss leithcourt i remarked my interest in her increasing for she seemed so extremely intelligent and well informed oh yes we've been to mexico and to panama besides morocco egypt and the west coast of africa and you actually landed at leghorn i remarked yes but we didn't stay there more than an hour to send a telegram i think it was father said there was nothing to see there he and i went ashore and i must say i was rather disappointed you are quite right the town itself is ugly and uninteresting but the outskirts, San Jacopo, Ardenza, and Antignano, are all delightful. It was unfortunate that you did not see them. Was it long ago when you put in there? Not very long. I really don't recollect the exact date, was her reply. We were on our way home from Alexandria. Have you ever, in any of the ports you've been, seen a yacht called the Lola? I asked eagerly for it occurred to me that perhaps she might be able to give me information. The Lola, she gasped, and instantly her face changed. A flush overspread her cheeks, succeeded next moment by a death-like pallor. The Lola, she repeated in a strange hoarse voice, at the same time endeavouring strenuously not to exhibit any apprehension. No, I have never heard of any such a vessel. Is she a steam yacht? who's her owner i regarded her in amazement and suspicion for i saw that the mention of the name had aroused within her some serious misgivings that look in her dark eyes as they fixed themselves upon me was one of distinct and unspeakable terror what could she possibly know concerning the mysterious craft i don't know the owner's name i said still affecting not to have noticed her alarm and apprehension the vessel ran aground at the Meloria, a dangerous shoal outside Leghorn, and through the stupidity of her captain was very nearly lost. Yes, she gasped, in a half-whisper, bending to me eagerly, unable to sufficiently conceal the terrible anxiety consuming her. And you, Uh, did you go aboard her? Yes, was the only word I uttered. A silence fell between us, and as my eyes fixed themselves upon her i saw that from her handsome mobile countenance all the light and life had suddenly gone out and i knew that she was in secret possession of the key to that remarkable enigma that so puzzled me of a sudden the door opened and a voice cried gaily why i've been looking everywhere for you muriel why are you hidden here aren't you coming we both turned and as she did so A low cry of blank dismay involuntarily escaped her. Next instant I sprang to my feet. The reason of her cry was apparent, for there, in the full light of the golden sunset streaming through the long open windows, stood a broad-shouldered, fair-bearded man in tennis flannels and a Panama hat, the fugitive I knew as Philip Hornby. I faced him, speechless. End of chapter 3.